Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 25B, an interview on the international adventures of William McKinley with Robert Mary. I'm excited to welcome Robert Mary to the show today. Bob is a 40-year veteran of Washington journalism as a reporter for the Wall Street Journal for a dozen years and as the longtime president and editor-in-chief of Congressional Quarterly. He has written five books on American history and foreign policy, including A Country of Vast Designs, James K. Polk, The Mexican War, and The Conquest of the American Continent, and President McKinley, Architect of the American Century. You can learn more about him from his website, robertwmary.com. And now, without further ado, let's dive into President McKinley and the dawn of the American Century. Uh, Bob, thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure, Ken. My pleasure. So the presidency of William McKinley really seems to be this transformative moment in American foreign policy where we go from like a controlling stake in Samoa to owning Hawaii, the Philippines, Puerto Rico and Guam and American troops having fought in Cuba and China. I'd love to start with a vocabulary question. People on social media sometimes get upset when the word imperialism starts getting tossed around. Does the United States of America become an imperial power during McKinley's presidency? Well, there's no question. Absolutely. It did become an imperial power. As you say, when he became president, we didn't have any significant overseas possessions whatsoever. And afterwards, we had the ones that you named, um, Hawaii, Guam, the Philippines, and Puerto Rico. We also had kicked uh, Spain out of the Caribbean so that that became an American lake. Um, we gained dominance over Cuba, although we didn't take possession over Cuba for any appreciable period of time. So absolutely, there's no question at all that that's exactly what happened. Um, so um, um, I, I would say that, that we became an imperialist project power, um, but that it wasn't exactly totally colonial imperialism. Back in those days, if you wanted to be an empire, you had to have colonies. That's why the Germans were going all over the world trying to get colonies, yeah. whether they made any sense strategically or not. But <laughs> yeah. America came about, came to it under McKinley, and I think later with a little bit of a different view that you could have a lot of influence in the globe without gaining colonies, which could be problematical anyway. But we can talk about how all that worked out with regard to the Philippines and these other possessions. Absolutely. We'll, we'll dive into that in a bit. And and I want to start, you know, like that, that desire not to say we had colonies, it, it might stem from the fact that we were a former colony. You know, our first president set a precedent for basically staying out of world affairs. How did Americans feel about the way they jumped onto the world scene during McKinley's presidency? Well, you know, Washington did tell us, don't go out into the world, but America was becoming a very rich, very big, very powerful country, and it had to go into the world almost by default. It couldn't uh, not um, employ uh, those levers of power in the world. And so uh, the American people generally were a people of restlessness. Um, I called my, my book on James K. Polk, A Country of Vast Designs, which was a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson. We were a country of vast designs and a country of people on the move. And so we consolidated our position on the North American continent uh, through the 1840s and, and uh, afterwards. Uh, and uh, then we busted out into the world. 
Now, there was opposition. There's always going to be opposition to that. But by and large, the American people were very much enthusiastic about this project uh, in general, that, that we were a country on the move and that uh, they wanted us to project ourselves uh, into the world. So McKinley is going to be involved in, let's say, four major international episodes. He will annex Hawaii. He will fight the Spanish-American War. He'll fight the Philippine-American War. And he'll send American troops to China to help put down the Boxer Rebellion. I'd love to look at each of those and the arguments for and against involvement in each, and then ultimately what their legacies are. So let's start with the Spanish-American War. What were the arguments for and against war with Spain, and why does McKinley ultimately uh, call for war? Well, you know, what's really interesting about McKinley is that historians have kind of assumed that um, that William McKinley was a man of sort of passivity, uh, that he wasn't a man of force. Uh, my book disputes that view. Um, and that the view is that he, these events, powerful events that occurred during his presidency kind of washed over him uh, and that he wasn't the person who was directing it. Um, but that's not exactly what happened. Now, he had to contend with the fact that there was a great deal of, of the population that wanted war. And we have to look at a little bit of background here. Um, Cuba had wanted its independence from Spain for decades. There had been two massive, very bloody insurrections, one kind of during our Civil War period uh, that ended in a negotiated settlement, which wasn't really abided by on, uh, by, um, um, by uh, Spain. Um, and then the one that was going on when McKinley became president. And it was very bloody and brutal. And Spain sent a general, Weiler, to Cuba to put down the rebellion. And he did so in a brutal fashion um, by dividing the island into these sort of um, sections and attempted to pacify the sections one after another. And, he, and they became kind of like extended concentration camps. But Spain didn't have either the money, uh, the, the, um, um, no, the wherewithal and the knowledge to protect people who were now sort of under their control. And the people were dying in the thousands. So it was a human, humanitarian disaster. And America has always been a country with a great deal of humanitarian instinct and impulse. Uh, and so there was a great deal of feeling in America that we've got to do something about this. Uh, and there was a lot of belligerence. Now, McKinley didn't, in, in, he didn't go into that belligerence. He didn't, um, he didn't embrace it at all, which is one of the reasons why a lot of historians and even people at the time thought that he was not um, on their side in terms of let's, we have to end this situation. But you got to understand that there was also a strategic factor. Here we had this instability and this terrible situation going on 90 miles from our shores, which were threatening to destabilize the entire Caribbean, which was our backyard. And we couldn't allow that to happen. So what McKinley did was he made it clear to Spain that you got to end this thing. I don't care how you end it, he essentially said. You can win, uh, or you can negotiate this thing, or you can get out, uh, but we can't have this uh, destabilized situation. Uh, and and uh, so there was a humanitarian factor that was a pro. There was the strategic factor 
which was less debated in the public discourse, but nevertheless was sort of understood. And that was a pro. What were the cons? Um, well, I think that the cons were that uh, America had not gone into the world, had not been an empire, had not uh, attempted to um, project itself. And uh, this would be a terrible precedent. So what's the legacy of that Spanish-American War? Uh, and we'll talk more about the Philippines in a second. So let's set that one aside. But, uh, you know, when we go to war over Cuba, we end up taking Guam, Puerto Rico. Uh, those become ours. Cuba, we set free, but have this kind of special relationship. What is the legacy? How does this change America's position in the world? Well, it changes it profoundly because, as we said, we were saying earlier, and as you noted in introducing this topic, um, we um, did not have possessions. We had not really projected ourselves into the world. And afterwards, we couldn't get out of the world. Um, we were stuck, whether we liked it or not. Yeah. But generally, we liked it. <laughs> but um, that always is attendant with a great deal of uh, difficulty and problems, uh, unanticipated um, 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 in instability and destabilization and all of those things, including the Philippine insurrection, which we'll talk about, including Vietnam, including, you know, all the rest of it, what we're doing right now with regard to Russia and China, etc. Um, so the legacy was profound. It was a turning point in American history. Uh, and it was a turning point that occurred not just on McKinley's watch, but because McKinley wanted it to happen. Now, let me sort of backtrack and talk a little bit about what was going on towards this end at the, uh, you know, when Mitt McKinley became president. We're going to talk about Hawaii, but there was a lot going on in terms of America taking possession of Hawaii, which was one of the most significant strategic points on the entire globe. Um, and... Um, and, and we were building a Navy. Why were we building a Navy? Um, well, we were building a Navy because the only reason to build a Navy is to project power to either for geopolitical purposes or for trade protection purposes. And we were building a Navy. We were angling towards building canal across the Central American Isthmus, mm -hmm. which ended up being the Panama Canal. Um, well, what was the significance of that? Well, with the canal, dominated by America, um, we could project more power with fewer battleships and fewer destroyers than we could without the canal and having to go all around uh, South America. So we were moving in that direction, um, and we would have moved in that direction with or without McKinley. But McKinley pulled it all together in a lot of ways uh, and made it uh, coherent. So the legacy is profound. I'm curious, how did this influence our relationship, say, with European powers? Was there any element of until the United States beat Spain and, and gets some territories of its own, Europe views us as like a little kid? And once that happens, maybe do they treat us different diplomatically after that or not really? Well, that's a very fascinating question. Um, I, I think that the, the way to look at that primarily is through the relations between the United States and Britain. And just before McKinley's presidency, we had an episode with Britain involving uh, South America, certain Venezuela. territories in South America, yeah. uh, that almost led to war with Great Britain. And it was the last time that ever came even close to happening. And why was that? Well, it was right around the time of the turn of the last century in, in McKinley's time, 
in the 1890s that America, and the statistics were known in those days, that America became the greatest economic power on the globe, replacing Great Britain. And what's amazing about this is that there was not the kind of competition that we're seeing today between China and America, where China is threatening to supplant America as the premier global power, or that we saw at the turn of the last century also between Great Britain and Germany, as Germany emerged as a consolidated power on the continent of uh, Europe, and also started to build a navy that was a direct competitive salient uh, against the British Navy, the Royal Navy. Um, and those tensions, well, the tension between US and China, we don't know where that's gonna go, but the tensions <laughs> between Germany and Great Britain, we know exactly where it went, yeah. went to World War I, yeah. and that was almost inevitable. But that didn't happen between the United States and Great Britain, and why? Well, I would contend, and, and I've written extensively about this, and a lot of it had to do with the fact that we are we were essentially root and branch part of the British milieu, if you will, <laughs> and that, and that um, uh, Great Britain essentially said, well, we need to partner with these guys because they've got too much power to mess with, and um, we can have a great partnership, uh, even though we're not going to be necessarily the senior partner in the arrangement. And, and that's essentially what happened, but it didn't just happen by itself. And here we come to McKinley again, and his Secretary of State, John Hay, one of the greatest Secretaries of State in the history of America, um, fashioned, he, would, he had been uh, ambassador to Great Britain under McKinley prior to being Secretary of State. And he was most directly responsible, aside from McKinley, for establishing a relationship with Great Britain that became the special relationship that we've had ever since. So in that sense, um, uh, it, uh, in terms of uh, how, and, and the other European powers, uh, they sort of had to respond to Great Britain anyway, because Great Britain was the global hegemon. Um, and uh, so that kind of sort, of sort of slipped into place. But we can talk about that more when we get to China, because yes. uh, there's some very interesting aspects of all this in the China episode. All right, we'll get to China a bit. Next, though, I want to jump to Hawaii, which you mentioned a second ago. And uh, this happens in the middle of the Spanish-American War. You know, we're like in the middle of the fight in this war. We annex Hawaii. Now, that had started a while earlier. You know, the Hawaiian monarchy had been overthrown basically by American sugar planters about a handful of years earlier. They'd been applying for annexation. Uh, the previous president, Grover Cleveland, had said no. But then in the middle of the war with Spain is when McKinley says yes. So not when he first becomes president. In the middle of this war is when yes happens. What were the arguments for and against annexation? Why does it happen now? Yeah, let me say just one little thing as maybe a little bit of a um, augmentation of what you said. They were American planters in the sense that they came from families that had been American families. But these were people who had been in Hawaii for generations. Uh, and they had intermarried uh, with uh, the uh, indigenous people, the Polynesian people of Hawaii extensively. In fact, the last queen, the queen who was overthrown uh, of Hawaii, was married to uh, an American, not an American citizen, a Hawaiian citizen um, of American descent. Huh. Um, and so these people had immense economic power in the Hawaiian islands because sugar, which was what uh, they were planting, is a hugely profitable crop. 
And especially in the industrial world, canning was becoming um, a significant way of preserving foods, and that required sugar, and that exploded the demand for sugar worldwide. So these people were immensely rich, but they didn't have political power. Uh, and so there was, in fact, as you say, um, essentially a kind of a coup or revolution, um, largely, largely bloodless, but not entirely, uh, in which they took over and upended the monarchy. Well, there was a um, American military naval ship that was in Hawaii at the time. And there was a sort of a collusion aspect to all this and America had bloody hands on all of this. And um, the president uh, Cleveland before McKinley was aghast at all this and he didn't want to have anything to do with this whole thing in which the American captain, naval captain, and the, the American heritage uh, folks of Hawaii were um, in, in interested in getting the annexation of Hawaii to America, making Hawaii part of the United States. Uh, and, but McKinley came in and he immediately reversed the McKinley view because he in fact did want Hawaii uh, and I think that there was economic reasons because it was, you know, it was a um, huge economic benefit for America to have that. But strategic reasons, if you look at a map, the entire Pacific Ocean is just this vast water, except for Hawaii. So if you want to project power from America eastward into Asia, Hawaii is crucial. And and if you want to prevent America from projecting power uh, then if, from into Asia, then it's crucial for Asians, in this case, it would have been the Japanese, to get control of Hawaii. And the Japanese had a legitimate concern because there were an awful lot of Japanese who had gone over there to work in the fields and weren't that all that well treated, which was an issue that uh, Japan had with Hawaiian leaders, number one. Uh, and number two, uh, Japan understood the strategic significance. And McKinley did too. And he basically said, I, I, this is as crucial as, um, as uh, getting um, California was when uh, Polk was president. So, um, so yeah, he did foster that. And it wasn't that easy. There was a lot of opposition. We talked earlier about the opposition to all of this. And I could name some of them, I wrote them down here. I could name some of the people who were opposed to Hawaii and a lot of these other imperial uh, actions. House Speaker Thomas Reed, they called him Tsar Reed because he was so powerful. He hated the idea. Mark Twain, especially in the Philippines. Uh, Andrew Carnegie, uh, the uh, industrialist, the industrial uh, financier. William Jennings Bryan, uh, McKinley's political um, opponent. And uh, one of my favorites, Edwin Godkin. Edwin Godkin was one of the most influential journalists of the day. He was editor of both the, the uh, Nation magazine and the New York Post. So, um, so there was uh, a lot of opposition, but McKinley got it through the Senate uh, and the House. Um, it was not done as a treaty. It was done as a piece of legislation, which meant it didn't need two thirds of the Senate. Uh, and that's how we got Hawaii. Oh, but let me just say, Ken, if I could. Um, so suppose when America was ha having difficulties with Japan 
Instead of Japan attacking Pearl Harbor by way of moving west to threaten the United States West Coast, suppose Japan had attacked the West Coast from Hawaii, which it would have been able to do, but wasn't able to do until it had Hawaii. Right. Exactly. It's one of those like kind of what ifs of history, you know. Yes, indeed. And and I did see like it, a lot of the arguments I often read of for picking up a lot of these territories was well, if the United States doesn't do it, someone else will. Well, Germany was right there, and so was Japan. And either yeah. one of them, they might have even fought each other for it. But both of both G- Germany and Japan were hovering, and they really, really wanted Hawaii. And and actually, so I was, next, I was going to ask, what's the legacy of this decision? Is that part of it? Is part of the legacy that we had Hawaii to be our buffer in World War II? Are there other parts of this legacy? That was the most direct example, um, but it, it was written in what didn't happen. We we were not challenged from Asia mm. because we because it was almost impossible to challenge the United States from Asia so long as the United States had that single point on the in the Pacific uh, from which you could dominate the Pacific. Very interesting. Um, all right, so so at the end of the Spanish-American War, next big one we've talked about a few times, we decided to keep the Philippines. And a, a brutal civil war breaks out soon between American, or not civil war, kind of war of independence between American soldiers and Filipinos who wanted that independence. What were the arguments for holding on to the Philippines, for staying and fighting for the Philippines? And what were the arguments for leaving the Philippines? What were the arguments for saying, you know what, just set them free? And what convinced McKinley to, to stay and fight and try to keep them? Well, that was a complex, um, it's a complex uh, question for today. It was a complex reality in McKinley's day. Um, so we got to step back just a touch. And I mentioned we were building a Navy. We were building a Navy before McKinley. Um, and why were we building a Navy? Well, because we were becoming a global trading country uh, and we had to make sure that we could protect our trading routes. And so we were building this big Navy. Um, and whereas the Brits were very concerned about the Germans building one because the Germans uh, you know, were too so close and could consolidate power on Europe, which would be a threat to Great Britain and to, to England. Um, uh, they, they, the American Navy, because we were so isolated, we were able to build this Navy and nobody was trying to stop us. But what do you need when you have a global Navy? You need coaling stations. Mm-hmm. And, and because the Navy, the ships are worthless if they don't have coal and they don't, don't have the power. Yeah. Um, and so what do you need if you have coaling stations? Well, you need to be able to protect those coaling stations, which means you probably need land mass around your coaling stations so that you can as, as install enough troops and, and military power to protect your little coaling station. And if you're going to do that, you have to have, um, you know, have to, you, you have to be able to protect uh, the protective landmass around your coaling station. So that conundrum was distilled when we took the Philippines. And McKinley was sort of open-minded about it. He didn't say, well, we're going to take everything that we got, although he said, we're going to take everything that we want after we get what we can, in, almost in those words. And so he looked at the Philippines. So the, the question was, well, we're certainly going to have a coaling station, and the best place to have a coaling station is in Subic Bay on Luzon Island. Okay, fine. We have to have all of Luzon Island. 
because if we don't have Luzon Island, we can't, we can't protect the coaling station. Mm-hmm. But if we don't have the rest of the Philippines, how are we going to protect Luzon Island? And if we just leave the rest, it's going to be a free-for-all. And the industrial West uh, was in a position to basically dominate uh, the Philippines. Uh, they were powerless uh, to the Western powers. So that meant that there was going to be a free-for-all. There was going to be a, a probably a feeding frenzy where the Germans and probably the Brits and, and uh, the Russians, perhaps, and the Japanese now. Um, we're going to go in and essentially carve it up like they'd been doing in China. Um, and so he said, no, we can't allow that uh, for two reasons. Number one, it's not strategically um, viable. Uh, but secondly, it's a humanitarian disaster. And we are the liberators. Well, now, <laughs> uh, Mr. Anguinaldo, the uh, great, uh, really brilliant um, uh, guerrilla fighter against American uh, hegemony in the Philippines wouldn't have seen it that way. And a lot of Filipinos didn't see it that way. But McKinley saw it that way. And he was, he had a touch of humanitarianism. And as I say, America always had kind of an impulse towards the humanitarian outlook, unlike other nations of that period of, of you know, Western um, uh, imperialism. Uh, and uh, so he put those two things together and said, we got to take the whole thing. Got it. Now, I will say that the, the war that it erupted, the guerrilla war, uh, was a real mess. I mean, we don't tend to think of it that way, but it, I mean, most of the people living in America today kind of understand what Vietnam was like. But the Philippines threatened to be like Vietnam and came kind of close uh, because it, became, it looked like it could become a quagmire. But we managed to get through that without too much ripping and tearing of the um, political fabric of America. But it was a close call. What is the legacy of the Filipino-American War and, and keeping the Philippines? How was American history or the American character changed by us fighting to hold on to that the island chain? Well, it's not clear what we, you know, what kind of a war we would have had uh, with Japan if we hadn't had the Philippines as well as Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we became a, a, a Asian power. We became a Pacific power, uh, and the Philippines was the linchpin of that in terms of getting into Asia itself. Uh, and so uh, I, I would say that the legacy was huge in terms of the outcome of World War II or the way the outcome in World War II uh, was affected and what the cost of that victory was. Um, and it, it projected us into Asia and made us an Asian power. And ultimately, it made us an Asian power with or without the Philippines, because after World War II, we had the biggest Navy. Nobody could touch us. Yeah. We had um, the Philippines. We had Hawaii. We had Guam. We had the uh, Marianas. Uh, yeah, and uh, so we, had, uh, we had positioned ourselves to dominate the Pacific, and we dominated the Pacific and Asia for 70 years. All that's under challenge now, but that was a pretty significant development. All right. Last international adventure, we, we briefly mentioned it, China. Uh, around 1900, Chinese peasants organized a massive revolt against foreign powers who, as you mentioned, were carving out growing spheres of influence and concessions within China. McKinley dispatched troops to join the fight to end the rebellion. There were like eight countries that were part of this army to put down the rebellion. What were the arguments for and against sending troops all the way into China like you cannot get much further away from the United States uh, to, to participate in this intervention. 
Yeah, uh, just a little bit of background on that as well. Um, you mentioned uh, the these countries carving up China. China was a basket case nation. It had fought the opium. It had been basically kind of stomped over by Britain in the opium wars. And uh, it had been uh, sort of uh, laid open, laid bare. It was a basket case of a, of a, of a country of the last dynasty. I don't know how it's pronounced, but it's spelled Q-I-N-G. Um, the last dynasty was falling apart. And so was the country. And it was vulnerable to this carving up. But there was one other element that's worth noting, and that was the missionaries. Hmm. The uh, French Catholics and the, um, the American uh, Protestant missionaries uh, who had amassed a great deal of power within this chaotic nation uh, and was and was uh, affecting the culture of China in ways that the leadership and the, and the former people who were the elites um, were very uncomfortable with. So not only was there a great deal of anti-Western, and Japan was part of all this too, so anti-Japanese, uh, feeling fervor um, uh, among Chinese rank and file, ordinary citizens, but even the leaders of course, had a responsibility to act somewhat responsibly in terms of international relations, but they hated it too. And so they allowed a lot of, a lot of abuse of Westerners and they were being killed and they were being um, abused and traduced. Um, and they, uh, be in fright, uh, these Western, mostly diplomats, but other traders and others uh, got themselves into the diplomatic compound uh, in Beijing, Peking then, uh, and were sort of holed up. And they were besieged by millions, not millions, but thousands of um, Chinese um, citizens who were bent on basically slaughtering them. So it wasn't really a question of these Western powers going into China to take over, although they right. had been taking over, <laughs> right. basically forcing the Chinese to accept and acquiesce in losing ports and harbors and uh, strategic locations. And it was a feeding frenzy. And uh, so America joined that. Now, America didn't believe in entangling alliances. So McK under McKinley, we were not supposed to be aligning ourselves with these other leaders, <laughs> but that was that proved to be sort of impossible and utterly unrealistic and made McKinley administration look a little bit hapless initially, but they kind of realized they had to be part of this Western phalanx because mm -hmm. otherwise, and there was weeks that went by in which we thought that they had been slaughtered. So you can imagine oh, wow. uh, how people in America were feeling about this, uh, this, this situation. But uh, through Western ingenuity and military um, brilliance, really, uh, we managed to get uh, troops uh, to Beijing to protect these people. Uh, and then the question was, okay, we have to negotiate the outcome of this with the Chinese. Uh, and here's where McKinley is very interesting. Uh, he, the, 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 many of the, the um, Western powers, especially Germany, uh, wanted to, to sort of uh, take an, a vengeance role, a, a vengeance approach, revenge. Um, McKinley said no. Um, and 
And McKinley said, no, we're, we're, and, and we're going to end this feeding frenzy through the open door policy where everybody can come in and trade, but nobody is going to be taking advantage of the situation vis-a-vis other Western powers. Uh, and what emerged out of that was, in my view, is the concept of non, non-colonial imperialism. So that America said, essentially, we're not going to take any of these ports, or, you know, not like Hong Kong or not like um, um, Shanghai or the, what the British had, all these five uh, ports that they'd sort of taken over. We're not going to do that, and we're not going to let anyone else do that anymore if we can stop it. Uh, and, and because we had developed so much power and influence, uh, and this was really the first time we'd ever demonstrated this kind of power and influence, we were able to dominate the negotiations with the Chinese in a way that was beneficial to the Chinese and moved the world, the West in China, away from the feeding frenzy. So it was a very significant development in that regard. And I think it was pivotal in creating the kind of what you might call non-colonial imperialism or um, you might even call it somewhat benign imperialism, although it's never really benign, yeah. um, that America projected after World War II uh, kind of fashioned in greater detail and um, a greater sense of, of a whole uh, by Franklin Roosevelt. So you mentioned the term feeding frenzy a couple times, and I often see this phrase when I was reading about it as, you know, McKinley did not want China to get carved up. How real was that threat? Like, was Germany saying there, sitting there saying, we want one-eighth, and Japan gets one-eighth, and Britain gets one-eighth? Like, was there a threat China would have been totally dismembered the same way that Europe had done to the, you know, the Middle East and uh, Africa and, and Latin America? I mean, there's a long history before this of just taking big places and carving it up and handing out slices. Was that a threat with China? Well, uh, it certainly looked like it, and it may have been uh, to a significant extent, but I don't think China, I think China was too big um, and had too much of a strong sense of itself um, to ultimately be carved up for all time. Mm. I think, um, and I think that the history of China since that period would demonstrate that uh, there's a lot of fiber there and they weren't going to uh, ultimately, they were going to be able to find a way to um, re-emerge uh, as a significant player from this uh, abject adversity that they yeah. were experiencing. But that's an open question, and um, one can debate, you know, what might have happened endlessly. I try to avoid debating what might have happened. Totally, totally. Questions. Yeah, I, I totally picture an alternate universe where, you know, China looks like the Middle East or something right now. But you're right. Who knows? It, it might have pulled itself back together no matter what. Um, the, the One more question I got for you is, so we've talked about all these crises that we where we sent troops or whether we acquired territory. Why didn't we uh, turn these places we acquired into states real quick? Why, why didn't we say, all right, we got the Puerto Rico. Let's make it a state. We got Guam. Let's make it a state. Why was everyone, why wasn't that a push? It seems like that's part of like how it's supposed to function. Well, I think you're couple of uh, um, a couple of uh, factors here um, you know I think that there's probably some you know um, ethnic prejudice involved um, in fact um, when um, Hawaii when the debates about the Hawaii annexation were raging um, one of the senators got up in the Senate and said uh, okay uh, 
I'm, I'm, I'm weighing this and, and I may be with you, but I want to make sure I understand we're not talking about making Hawaii a state, are we? Um, <laughs> and uh, the answer was, uh, I, um, I can't remember the senator who was running the Foreign Affairs Committee at that time, but uh, said, uh, Foreign Relations Committee, said, oh, no, 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 we wouldn't, we wouldn't consider that. Um, and then also, I think that in case of in case of Guam or Puerto Rico, I just don't think they were considered to be large enough to be to be states. So they sort of were put into the territorial status uh, from the beginning. And it wasn't really much of a debate or a contention in America regarding that. Hawaii, of course, and Alaska, our last two states, yep, yep. Um, were a different factor, but they were larger. And, um, and there wasn't so much of the ethnic question with regard to Alaska. But there certainly was with Hawaii, but it's worked out fine. What can we learn from the way McKinley led the country through these foreign crises? Is there a lesson in leadership here? You know, I think there is. And some of my reviewers, when I wrote the McKinley book, suggested that as well. I had a problem writing about McKinley because McKinley was a man who led by indirection and uh, he wasn't a man of force or overt force, but he always seemed to get his own way. Um, and so, that, and I, I tried, and, and he, didn't, he didn't keep a diary. He didn't write many letters even. Mm. So it was really hard to get a take on this guy. I, I wrote about James K. Polk and he kept this amazing diary through his breath. I knew what he was thinking. And, um, and, and, and almost on everybody and everything. And so that, you could really sort of get into it. And it was really hard with McKinley. Well, I developed this motif, which was the, 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 the mystery of William McKinley. How did he accomplish all this stuff in this sort of indirection way? Well, um, he did accomplish it. Uh, and he did do it because he wanted to do it. What happened during his presidency largely was a product of the things that he wanted to happen. Um, and uh, so that was kind of the McKinley leadership. Now there was a congressman by the name of uh, Butterworth, uh, Ben Butterworth, <laughs> who was a Republican. He didn't, he didn't like McKinley that much personally, it appears from his letters, um, but he was very, very close to Mark Hanna, who was McKinley's sort of chief um, go-to guy and his chief operative on anything that he needed done. And he, he, he described McKinley in a way that, I really liked, and I think it really captures him. He says, if, if I were walking through an apple orchard with uh, Bill McKinley that had, um, uh, that had but uh, two um, producing apple trees, and on one of those trees that we were walking under had but two apples, Will would grab both apples, he put one in his pocket, He'd take a bite out of the other one and he'd turn to me and say, do you like apples, Ben? <laughs> and he was trying to say that he was always, there was a certain sense of entitlement with McKinley. He always took what he wanted, yeah. but he always did it in such a pleasant way that no one could really get too angry with him. And he got away with an awful lot. Um, and uh, so that was, the, that was the McKinley leadership. And you can say that it was uh, stealthy, and maybe it wasn't always entirely overt. Maybe he was not always kind of honest, but it was very civil and respectful of other points of view. Uh, and I think that the lesson for our time 
when we're living through uh, an era of American political internal hostility and meanness, uh, is that a little bit of McKinleyism uh, might not be such a bad idea. Awesome. If you'd like to hear more from Bob, please check out his books, including President McKinley, Architect of the American Century. Thank you so much for your time, Bob. Pleasure. Enjoyed being with you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, tell your friends about the show, leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. Really appreciate it when you tell your friends about the show. I love seeing more people come and find us. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. If you would like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash Abridged Presidential Histories. Helps me buy books and pay to host the show. And thank you, everyone, who's contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, a big one, we will get to the life and presidency of Theodore Roosevelt. And we're going to focus on the episodes that turned him from, like, D-list politician to the president that we know today. What made TR, TR? That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories.